Welcome back to the channel. This is Plenary Session ASCO Edition. I'm covering all the ASCO abstracts, well, all the papers, and I, I'm putting them out as fast as I can read and process the results. So far, what have I given you? I've given you a review of Shine. That's a video we've been talking about, Shine, which is, of course, a terrible study. That was easy. Everyone knows it's terrible. Everyone's talking about how terrible it was. People are asking, you know, why did it take so long to report that PFS? What happened to all those interim analyses? You know, those are questions that keep coming up. The next paper I tackled was dynamic CTDNA stage two colon cancer. I found a bunch of things that would temper your enthusiasm for dynamic. I think a lot of people say kind of affected their thinking about it. Since then, I've been marinating on that paper more and a whole bunch of new thoughts came into my mind since then. And maybe someday I'll revisit that. Then I took a tour of multiple myeloma, the determination study, as in we're determined to keep doing transplant. I see the transplanters won't let go. You know, that is another really nail in the coffin of transplantation in CR1. Transplanters won't let go. They still want to do it. They're saying things now such as this. If the median isn't reached in both arms, you can't say there wasn't a survival benefit. That's a, that's a little factoid that they appear to have invented entirely. It doesn't really exist. You can clearly say a trial failed to show an improvement in overall survival long before the median is reached. They're obsessed with medians in, the, in oncology. You do understand that overall survival benefits can be shown long before medians and overall survival failures, the failure to improve overall survival and futility can be reached long before a median is reached. So I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry to break that news to you, oncologists. Then... I took a look at Destiny Breast 4 in the last video. Since then, one of the points I made in that video was it's a little bit odd that so many people who are triple negative when they, did, when they entered that study had been treated with endocrine therapy. A bunch of people have written to me, you know, VP, aren't you, aren't you forgetting about the people who initially present hormone receptor positive and then they change to hormone receptor negative later on in their, in their cancer care? Absolutely. That's a group of people. And... I spent the afternoon looking up case series as to how often that occurs, okay? And I also looked up in this paper, Destiny Breast 4, how often it occurred. In Destiny Breast 4, it's 37% in change of people who were triple negative had gotten some endocrine therapy. I can't find a citation. I can't find anybody who says hormone receptor loses it 37 point some percent of the time to become triple negative and of triple negative breast cancer 37 percent of the time it was hormone receptor positive initially if you can find me a reference that says that that high a number is plausible go ahead and put it there but i just don't think that that's likely the explanation i really don't and you know it's just too high i mean if it was five percent ten percent fifteen percent like the highest series i found okay but 37 percent you got some splaining to do okay now I'm talking about the paper that is the talk of the town. This is what was catnip for the newspapers. Why? Because you don't need to know much statistics when you get 100%. This is PD-1 blockade in mismatch repair deficient locally advanced rectal cancer. This is the Luis Diaz and colleagues paper. This is the paper from Sloan Kettering, Dostarlamab. And I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it the plenary session treatment here. Okay. Rectal cancer stage two, stage three. What do you need to know? Let's take a look at this paper. Is this as exciting as people say? First thing you need to know, of course, those of us who are in the rectal cancer business, we know a lot about adjuvant, neoadjuvant, neoadjuvant chemo RT, adjuvant chemotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. This is the NCCN guidelines I pulled up today just to give you a flavor of it. But when you're talking about, you know, N1, N2 disease, when you're talking about T3 lesions, you know, you're really talking about chemotherapy, chemoradiotherapy. We can debate the nuances, but... You know, chemoradiotherapy has been long been the backbone with surgery. 
and then the role of adjuvant, neoadjuvant, we can debate the benefits. And we could have a long video on this topic, actually, and go through all the randomized controlled trials. And once upon a time, I was interested in doing that. But right now, I'm less interested in that question because one point I want to make here is that anyone who does this therapy knows that you'd prefer not to do it. I mean, if you had to, you'd prefer not to have to do this treatment than having to do this treatment. I think we'll have to agree. It can be toxic. It can have to lead to complications. A lot of people finish the chemo RT. They're not thrilled about undergoing the surgery. I get it. I totally get where that's coming from. This is not a walk in the park, and this is something that people would want to avoid. The other point I want to make, this is a study of mismatch repair deficient tumors, stage two, stage three, MSI high tumors with high TMB. Their TMB was rip-roaring. I think it was something to even over 100. What would you expect if these people were treated the conventional way? This was a paper I found that, you know, has a lot of limitations, and I don't want you to hang on to it too much, but I want you to look at this and just get to the conclusion of the blue line are people with proficient mismatch repair. That's not who's in this dostarlimab study. And the dostarlimab results apply to about 5 to 10% of stage 2-3 rectal cancer, and that's more depicted by the yellow line here. There are very small numbers in some of these plots. In one, they said, you know, new adjuvant chemotherapy followed by, you know, other treatment leads to, you know, the line in A, pretty good DFS, but new adjuvant chemo RT, which is shown in the B figure, which more people are undergoing, you know, it has sort of a comparable outcomes as mismatch repair proficient tumors. What's my point here? My point here is just like, you know, what might you expect? The glass is half full. Most of these people are going to have long-term DFS, you know? I think it's a glass half full situation. Um, but, you know, it's not perfect. It's not 100%. And, you know, we can debate 75, 80. You know, you pick your number, what you'd expect your DFS to be at 24 months or three years. You know, you pick your number. This is roughly, roughly some lay of the land, okay? What do they do here? Single group prospective phase two study, single institution, neoadjuvant dostarlimab which is a checkpoint inhibitor, administered intravenously 500 milligrams every three weeks for six months, nine cycles, followed by they were gonna give you standard radio, radiation therapy with concurrent Zolota at standard doses, followed by surgery. That was what they were planning. They were gonna do this, chemo RT, surgery. That was what they were planning. Reasonable. Let me show you another way to look at it. Stage two, three rectal cancer. They get this drug. They get all these biopsies, these MRIs, these PET-CTs, radiologic and endoscopic evaluation. If you happen to be in clinical complete response, they would keep following you. If you had any residual disease, you get the chemo RT. If you had residual disease, you get the surgery. That was the plan. Um, you know, it's an uncontrolled study. It's small. I think it's reasonable, actually, quite a reasonable plan. The other point, of course, well, maybe I've kind of just taken for granted. You know this. You know that we have Keynote 177, which moved Pembro frontline for MSI high colorectal cancer. We also have drug approvals in the salvage setting in a tumor agnostic fashion for MSI high. But we know that these people, they got a date, you know, if they relapse eventually, they got a date with checkpoint inhibitor. And this is just trying to move that all the way to the front, okay? And we know that, and in this study, I think they find 57% of these people have genetic Lynch syndrome or HNPCC, it's germline. Uh, the other half was sporadic, but they often have mismatch repair gene defects. We know that. And uh, we know those people benefit from checkpoint inhibitors, okay? And that's the, the premise here. They're just moving it up. This was one of the first results I saw. I looked in the supplement, and I saw the rectal mass SUV 
And when they get this treatment, it plummets and it, it stays plummeted in the people in whom they have long-term follow-up. You know, it's only 12 people, but, you know, impressive. Individual response to PD-1 blockade with dostarlimab. They didn't even get to the chemo RT. They didn't need to get to the chemo RT because everyone was in complete response by all the measures from DRE to PET, etc. I'll show you more. And the age range was broad. Stage, you know, T4, T1, node positive, follow-up. You get the picture. 100%. Clinical symptoms also got better. It didn't just improve radiographic things. Of course, abdominal pain, rectal bleeding, constipation, rectal pain tended to get better as they went on because they're having complete resolution of the disease. The duration of response, the six months was the treatment duration, um, but everybody they had followed, every single person remained in CR. It's not just that they had 100% CR rate, that the duration of response was, you know, they have not had a response fade. That's impressive. This is a picture of a course. They have so many of these pictures, the endoscope. I'm an oncologist. I don't I don't like to look at these for a living, and I don't. Um, but, you know, you don't need to know much to know that looks better on endoscopy. You don't need to know much about rectal MR, which, by the way, is not always an easy modality to look at, to know that looks better. And the FDG PET, well, that's one thing that we all can do. It looks better. Everything looks much, much better. Everything is in CR. It's very impressive. Adverse events. The adverse events of this are... Much, much better than the alternative, I think. Uh, you know, I mean, this is, yes, there are some adverse events, but, you know, the alternative was chemo RT and surgery, so I would say, me me prefer this. You know, I prefer, I'm going to prefer this. 100 times out of 100, I'll prefer these adverse events to that. The only thing I don't know about this is this line in the discussion that I didn't like. It's the only, the, only, the only thing I could even kind of fault. As these data mature, we envision that PD-1 blockade will be evaluated in other mismatched repair deficient tumors, such as localized pancreatic gastric prostate cancers. In the context of neoadjuvant treatment, this could open the door for immunoablative approach invo involving a variety of tumor types akin to mismatched repair deficiency in patients with metastatic disease. In the event that local additional recurrence is observed, combination chemotherapy radiation therapy may be warranted in addition to the checkpoint blockade. You don't, you don't need, you don't need to say our results are going to apply to every tumor type because the truth is you don't know. You don't know that to be the case, and. Um, I, I would actually, I mean, do I want to go on record as saying I, I have more skepticism that it will be a panacea for all other tumor types? But I think you're on to something with rectal cancer. You're on to something. You really are on to something with rectal cancer stage 2, stage 3 rectal cancer. You've got 100% CR rate. You really are on to something. You don't need to say it's going to work in every other mismatch repair deficient cancer. I doubt that that will be the case. It will work as impressively as that um, because even in this cancer in a later setting, it works, but not as impressively. Um, I think, you know, you might just be, you stumbled upon a sweet spot. Just cherish it. Just cherish it. You don't need to extend it to the world. So I wouldn't have, I would have omitted this paragraph. I think it's speculatory. But other than that, I thought it was, you know, very well done. Very well done. I mean, it's well presented. It's well done. And um, it's small, it's 12 people, but I'm gonna give you the solution. Now look, before I tell you what the study they need to do is, before I tell you that study, and I spend a little bit of time thinking about it, what do I wanna see? When you, when you have a standard of care situation that nobody loves, you replace it with a single IV drug, have a 100% CR rate, not a single person has relapsed, that is impressive. You're averting surgery, you're averting radiotherapy, that is impressive. What do you need to do? And I wanna be very clear. I'm the parachute person in the sense that, that 
I might be one of the few people who has studied this topic more than anybody else. Maybe even more than the people who author the original parachute papers because I've authored two papers in this parachute space. They've only authored one each, as far as I can tell. What is this parachute metaphor? There is a metaphor in biomedicine called the parachute analogy. And basically what it means is this. A couple of OB-GYNs in 2004, they wrote a paper in the British Medical Journal. They said, let me do a systematic review of the parachute. Now, of course, when you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, what happens to you? Well, you go splat. But not all the time. Actually, there are a few case reports of people who survive tremendous free falls, but it's pretty close to a 100% fatality rate. A few case reports. If you wear a parachute, what happens to you? It's not 100% survival. I'm sorry to break it to you. The National Parachuting Association keeps detailed statistics, and there is, in fact, some fatality rate. I think three per 10 million jump or seven per 10 million, something like that. But there's some chute doesn't open. They didn't peck a second chute. I don't know. I'm not an expert in parachuting, but it ain't 100%. Okay, but the absolute risk reduction is 99.9999999. That's really good. And there are no randomized trials to test something like that. You wouldn't need to do a randomized study to test something like that. Um, but it's widely accepted that that is a beneficial intervention. Now, people analogize this with biomedical practices, and that's why we wrote this paper, Most Medical Practices in Our Parachutes, the citation analysis to practices felt by biomedical authors to be analogous to parachutes. And what we did was we took that original BMJ paper, we sucked out the 1,000 papers that cited that paper in the following decade, we read every one of those papers in duplicate, Thank you, Michael Hayes. And then we found, no, not in duplicate. We were, Michael Hayes read all those as the initial screening, and then we read some of them in duplicate. And then what we found was most people use this analogy to say a randomized trial is not appropriate in my setting or space, but very few of them, I think only 35 of them, could name names and say this specific medical practice is, not, is, is also a parachute. But what Michael Hayes found was when they say their practice is also a parachute, half of the time, a randomized trial had already been done. And when it had been done, a third of the time it was positive, a third of the time it was negative, and a third of the time it had mixed results, which is roughly all randomized trials picked at random. And so the point I want to make here is that most people abuse the parachute analogy. They say, parachute, you never need a randomized trial for the parachute, so you don't need a randomized trial of the aortic balloon pump in cardiogenic shock. Except you kind of do, because it ain't a parachute. Similarly, they say, you don't need a randomized trial of stenting renal artery stenosis, but we kind of have done a few, and actually they're not as positive as you think. So this is the parachute analogy. It's often misused. Now here I want to be very clear that the standard of care treatment is 75 to 80%. I mean, you know, you pick your number, but it's not terrible. It's good. Um, it does have significant toxicity and morbidity, and now you come in with a therapy that is much less toxic, much less morbid, and you have ostensibly a 100% effect. You're 100%. You're good. But, you know, you have a small sample size, a wide confidence interval. What kind of study do you need? And before I tell you that, I want to tell you one more anecdote. Maybe about five or seven years ago, I was at a New York City dinner party. And I was sitting next to somebody who is a very, very important person in drug regulatory history. And this person told me, you know, people look at my work in drug regulation, they think you always want a randomized control trial. And he was like, I don't always want a randomized control trial. He was like, you know, sometimes a therapy is so great, you don't need one. Let me tell you a story. If you came up with a drug right now and you walked into a nursing home and you took the first 20 patients with end-stage Alzheimer's disease, they don't know who they are, they don't know where they are, you administer the drug IV and the peripheral person wakes up and says, oh my God, 
I know who I am. I know what happened. They tell you their story. I, I remember you bringing me here. Thank God you've reversed this. And you do it to the second person and the third person. I don't think anyone is going to make you do a randomized trial. You do it to five people in a row and they're just going to scale it up. That is a truly remarkable light switch thing. Now, I don't think this is quite there, but I don't think it's a parachute. But I think it is really remarkable that it's 100% with low toxicity. And so I thought about it and I will give you what I think the right study is going forward. And here is the right study, okay? The study I would run. You take people coming in with MSI high, stage two, stage three, rectal cancer, the people of this study, and you immediately say, the ongoing standard of care is chemo-RT. You're welcome to do that, but there is a new protocol. It is a randomized control trial of sorts. It's a unique randomized control trial. We bring you into the study, and the first thing we do is we randomize you to one of three, PD-1, PD-L1, PD, PD axis inhibition, dostarlimab, nivolumab, or pembrolizumab. You're randomized to one of three. And we just keep accruing. This is a pragmatic, this is a big, you know, this is a, a recovery randomized control trial. Anybody who wants in, you're getting in. 40%, 60%, we're bringing you all in. And we start randomizing you. And we randomize you to one of the three arms. And the reason I'm randomizing you to one of three arms is because I truly do not know if these drugs are the same or if there's something really special about dostarlimab, but I don't want to wait too long. I want to find that out. And here's what you do. You keep following people. And as long as you're getting 100% CR rates in every single arm and there's no relapses, I'm happy to let that run. You just keep letting it run, randomize, randomize, randomize. But anytime one arm gets to, we can pick a number, 5% relapse, 10% relapse, 15% relapse, and pick a time period at the time you'd want to look at. And there are different ways we can think about that. But something where you, you're not even in the equipoise territory. You're still out of the equipoise territory thinking this is really good stuff. You know, I haven't seen any signal that would make me think otherwise. But if you cross that, maybe 5% relapse, 10% relapse, that arm is closed. Well, that's never happened before. I literally ran out of space on that recording card and I had to move to the second card. What was I saying? Okay, so the first thing you do is you randomize people to these three arms. We can pick some stopping rule, 5%, 10% relapse. If you cross that, that arm is closed. But if you don't cross that, we will just keep enrolling patients. Thousands, 10,000. We'll just keep enrolling people until one of these arms declares it's the best. And if none of, and if none of them are the best, then we can just pay for whichever drug company wants to give us a little bit of a deal. Okay, but once you cross 10% in that arm, it's closed. If two arms cross 10% relapse, they're both closed. And if all three arms cross that futility, the futility of parachute kind of idea, this idea that like now we are not 100% sure that this is a 100% drug, once you cross that threshold, then we automatically trigger randomization, and that randomization will be to the winner of that little bit of contest, the winner of that contest versus standard of care, which is chemo-RT, surgery, adjuvant, neoadjuvant, as you wish. You know, that kind of situation. What are the advantages of my study? My study acknowledges that once people really appreciate these results, that it's 100%, the first thing they're going to want to see is to scale it up into a multi-center study. The other advantage of my studies, unlike the study that they're probably going to be running in a minute, my study actually will allow you to sort out if this is a class effect of drugs or if there's something unique about dostarlimab. And I think we need to know that very, very quick. The other advantage of my study is it automatically triggers a randomized control trial when we no longer feel confident we're talking about a 100% kind of therapy. But if this drug is as good as it's billed, 
then it will remain accruing. The other two arms may fall, and it may just be dostarlamab, dostarlamab, dostarlamab. And there are some very complex issues that I don't want to bore you with. How do you treat death? How do you treat death that occurs in the absence of relapse? How do you deal with it, especially because they're competing risks at some of these ages? Although, of course, MSI high patients are often younger than the other than the than the average rectal cancer patient. There's some complexity to it, but this is a rough schema, okay? This is a rough schema of how I would do it. And if you get to that last randomization part, you know, overall survival of course I think will be the primary endpoint. You'll want to look at quality of life, you'll want to look at local local relapse, you'll want to look at distant failure. You want to look at all the usual rectal cancer endpoints. But, you know, you can hope that you never get there. You can really hope you remain in the top part. So, these are my thoughts on this study. My overall thoughts, my overall thoughts, my overall thoughts are, it's impressive. You know, there's just no beating around the bush. It's impressive. It's only 12 patients. Yes. It's, it's not everything, but it is something. It really is a hundred percent CR rate. Not a single person has relapsed. Um, it's possible, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that actually with broader sample size, with more centers, that it actually becomes much more comparable to chemo RT. Maybe even theoretically with more and more data, it actually looks inferior. It's possible, but the toxicity profile is much, much better. It omits radiotherapy, it omits surgery, things that people don't really want. it's it's really it's really it's really strong. I mean, it's really looking good. And you want to you want a study design that has the benefits of randomization, that the benefits of giving you information. And that's the study design that I propose. It, it will give you information. You will learn more. Um, but it also will give people what they want, which is an opportunity for this drug. But if you cross some threshold where you've entered into equipoise, then it'll immediately start randomizing you once all those arms fail. But if one arm truly is the winner and truly hits the ball out of the park, it won't. So. I guess I would say it's a good paper. I mean, with the exception of that paragraph, I don't have much to quibble about. Maybe the one thing I would have liked to see is could you have broken down um, 2B, 2C, 3A? You know, could you break it down a little bit more? Tell me a little bit more about the nodes and a little bit more about that. That might be a little, that might be interesting to me. I did. What about EUS? Did did anyone do endoscopic ultrasound and biopsies? I, I didn't really capture that. Maybe I missed that. Um, and that one paragraph I don't like, but otherwise it was a good paper. It's very interesting. It might be the most interesting thing I read about ASCO, to be honest with you. I mean, you're really onto something. And, and, and let's, say, let's say that it actually holds up. I mean, if you really talk about a situation where three to five years from now, this fraction of patients just gets one drug, six months, stops, and never needs any additional therapy versus what they had to do, you know, last week, I think that will be remarkable. That will be a remarkable success story in oncology. And so... Hats off. Well done, Luis Diaz. Well done. Well done, paper. I'm very intrigued. I'm giving you a path forward. I think it will also sort out some issues as to which drug. Well done. This is Plenary Session, the fairest podcast there is. When I, when I don't have a problem with something, I don't have a problem with it. So until next time, we'll be back. We're going to talk about teclistamab. We're going to talk about more papers. I might get back into dynamic. I just saw I had some more ideas about dynamic and, and things that were wrong there. Um, If you're a fellow talking about this for Journal Club, I hope these videos are of interest to you. We're going to be back soon with a continue our video series with Timothy Olivier um, about about Malignant, the book. Um, We're going to be back with more information there, and we're going to be covering more randomized control trials in oncology, giving you that hard-hitting, informative commentary that you know and love on Plenary Sessions. So you know what to do. You like this. 
Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. You're listening on the audio feed. You should have been on the video feed. If you want to support this podcast, Plenary Session is active on Patreon. If you want to follow my thoughts in general, um, go to Substack. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. I run some websites. We do a lot of research. We'll be back. We've got a lot of papers coming soon, and some of these are quite exciting, so I'd like to talk to you about that. And I've got been in talks with some people to do some kind of discussions about some of these ASCO abstracts where people want to want to fight me a little bit. So that's fair. I'm happy to have it. You want to come on the show and fight me a little bit? Send me a note. So until next time.